All right, well, believe it or not, second week of Advent, which means it's the second week in the weeks building up to Christmas. And, uh, and I, I don't know about you, but it feels like when I was a kid, at least, and, and it's, it's different as an adult, but as a kid, I remember it taking forever to get to, like, Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving comes, and it's like everything goes so fast, and then all of a sudden it's a new year, and you're like, what happened? Uh, as an adult, that, it, it's different, but it's the different kind of things that, that lead me to believe that life's moving too fast at times. But uh, here we are in the second week of Advent and the build-up to Christmas. And last week, what we did is we spent some time looking at the person of John the Baptist. And, and we looked at how his whole mission in life, the calling that God put on his life, the person that God ordained him to be, was someone that was used to prepare the way for Jesus and so he cared little to nothing about anything in life other than what God called him to do and to be. So if, you, if you're here today and you struggle with being a people pleaser, if you're here today and you struggle with uh, wanting people to have a high opinion of you, uh, study the person of John the Baptist. Don't go as far and as extreme as he did maybe, but... Uh, but he is one in Scripture that we can point to to say absolutely he did not have any qualms or cares about what the outside world thought of him. He knew in his heart he had a deep sense of who God made him to be and the purpose in which God put him on this planet, and he lived out of that. And that's what we looked at last week was that word prepare and, and to prepare the way. He would say that, that, uh, that I am the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord, make a highway in the desert, a pathway for our God. And so uh, he, his job was to do just that, clear a path, clear a path. And, uh, and so that's what his whole life was about. And so there were moments that we looked at where these Pharisees and Sadducees, these leaders of the church, were, were called in to say, like, listen, there's a lot of people traveling into the wilderness to hear this guy teach about this person, Jesus, who we, who, 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 who we, we, we're like, this is a little different. We've seen other people come on the scene and say that they were somebody and say that they had a message and say that they were pointing to a redeemer and get quite a following. And it fizzled out over time. But this seems a little different. It's, it's got sustained momentum. And he's not coming into town and expecting people to come to hear him speak at, at an already gathered uh, uh, crowded place. See, that was the, that was the way things happened. And tends to be the way things happen now still, that if you feel like you have something to say, you're going to go where the crowd already is. You're not going to say what you have to say because you believe in it so passionately that people will come to hear you say it. And so in the, it, back then, things were, the, were sort of the same. If you thought you had something to say or you thought you were somebody important or if you were claiming to be the Messiah, which a lot of people did, they, they would go into where it was already crowded. And they would start saying things, and then they would feel good about themselves because they had a crowd. And they would say they drew a crowd, but they didn't actually draw a crowd. Probably a lot of people left the crowd once they started, and those who stayed might have resonated with what they were saying, but maybe it was just fueled by a curiosity of what's this guy talking about. And so the, the religious leaders of the day were kind of used to this behavior. They were kind of used to somebody standing up and saying, I'm somebody, I'm the Messiah, I have something to point you towards, and it's me. But this guy's different. 
This John the Baptist is different. He lives in the wilderness. He doesn't even come into town. He, he's, he's teaching at the riverbanks along the Jordan River, and he's saying that we need to be people who repent of our sin and be baptized in water as a symbol of being loyal to the coming Messiah. He's saying that my job is to prepare your heart for the moment that whenever you see him, you will recognize him in all of his glory. You will know who you are looking at. And then out of, out of that, he says, the moment Jesus comes on the scene, he's, John's doing his thing. He's, he's, he's teaching and he's preaching. And Jesus walks through the crowd. Now, he knows Jesus. This is his cousin. But he knows that this is the anointed son of God. When he looks him in the eye and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells the people, listen, do you know all the things I've been saying to you, all the things that you've heard from me, the person that I've been trying to prepare your hearts to see? He's right there. And what we talked about was as followers of Jesus in a fallen world, that's the kind of people we need to be. We need to be the kind of people that prepare people's hearts, that our interactions with the world around us prepare their hearts to meet Jesus, that when they see a very real Jesus, they can equate his character to ours. And they can say, wow, those people actually looked and talked and sounded and were kind and loving and merciful and graceful and all these other things that I'm experiencing in my Savior. And that's the call of being a disciple who makes disciples, someone who invests their time and energy and everything they've got into seeing people come to know Jesus. And our job isn't to sit down with them and make sure that we're there in a moment that they pray a certain prayer. Our, our job is to, is to point them to Jesus and work the soil. That's, that way someday when a seed is planted, it has perfect, perfect soil to be able to grow in. So what we talked about in the beginning of Advent is part of us preparing our hearts for Jesus is just preparing other people to meet Jesus too, that we adorn the gospel well. That's where the women get their name for their, uh, for their ladies' group and for their Bible study, is that we adorn it, and that, whenever, that, that we are a sweet aroma to a watching world, that whenever they, they smell and they see what's coming out of Journey Church, they want to see what it's about. What's driving this? What's, what's driving this character? What's driving this kindness? What's driving this generosity? That's living out the character of John the Baptist. And today, we're just going to continue in some of those same thoughts. So last week, we really focused in on the word prepare, and this week's similar, but we're going to take it a little step further, more specific, I'd say, and just say, be ready. There's a difference between being prepared and being ready, I think. We can be prepared and not ready. We can go through all our preparations, and then whenever the people get to the house, we're still like, ah, I'm still not ready. So this is a step further. Be ready really speaks to faith at a deeper level. That, that we're going to be prepared, yes, but we're also going to be ready. You know, one thing I love about Advent is it's like the season before the season. Advent is a season that builds up to a Christmas season. Now, everyone's a little different. I don't know when Christmas season starts for you. Maybe you work in a school system and you say, Christmas doesn't really start for me until the kids aren't coming to school and I don't have to go to work for a week. I don't know. Maybe you were like Andy and you worked for the Postal Service and you didn't really get a Christmas break at all. You 
Andy, were you like bah humbug because you had to deliver more stuff at Christmas? Oh, good. Good. We'll talk about your lying afterwards. So I think that, that, that start of Christmas season is a little different for all of us, depending on where we're at, what our circumstances are. But Advent is that build-up moment. It's like its own separate thing. And early church fathers and church history, just so you know, worked really, really hard. And, and even at times, and through our legal and justice system, lobbied hard to make these things important. That, that there would be two markers on every annual calendar to keep our hearts ready and prepared to see and to focus in on the beauty and gift of Jesus. Do you see that? Christmas and Easter have been put on our calendar. Our whole world celebrates these in America, I'll say. In America, we celebrate these two things. We go big. I mean, Christmas stuff is put out at Walmart now in what, July? It's like you've got lawn and garden equipment, but if you don't buy it by like July 4th, you're going to put it in the clearance section and all the Christmas trees come out. Christmas is a big deal. It's become a commercial holiday. I get that. There's a whole bunch of stuff about it that maybe doesn't look like what the original church fathers intended, but there are two things on the calendar to prepare to, to as, as fence posts to remind us of the beauty of Jesus, and it's Christmas and Easter. Our church fathers, our, 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 our founding fathers, worked really hard to make sure these two things were left on there, but do you realize church fathers, more so than founding fathers, worked even harder to keep two seasons before the season on the calendar for us to emphasize Advent and Lent? Two things that were set aside to focus in our attention, not just on a day, but on the build-up to what that day symbolizes. I used to think that Lent was just a time whenever I could eat whatever I wanted on Friday and my Catholic friends couldn't. I used to revel in eating my cheesesteak and lunch in school. All of them ate their cheese pizzas or crappy fish sandwiches. And I don't mean the fish was like the form of crappy. I mean, they were just horrible fish sandwiches. <laughs> but I mean, I've, over the years, I've learned and, and, and seen the richness of how Lent is Easter's advent. Lent is this moment where we can focus in on the beauty of the cross. We get our minds prepared. We, we take something that our, that our normal rhythms hold to, and we, we fast from it. That way, any time that my mind goes towards that thing, I allow myself to focus in on the beauty of the cross to prep my heart for the beauty story, beautiful story of Easter. Advent is like that. It's like Lent. It's this build-up moment. It's the season before the season. It's when we get to really focus in. We keep our minds and our hearts focused on eternal things. And our church fathers, the church historians of the day, the guys who, who, who were really responsible for moving the gospel forward and fighting fights and even dying for this over the centuries, worked really hard to make sure that these two things, these two fence posts, were properly put in the ground and fixed. And I would say kudos to them. They succeeded. They were so good at it that Satan has created all different kinds of distractions to keep our minds away from the true meanings of these things that are so deeply rooted into our culture that even if you say you don't believe in God, you still celebrate. 
There's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago. It actually was seen as like a comical book back when it was written. It's all satirical. Now, we would read it now and not see necessarily the humor in it. I think you could probably find yourself chuckling at it a few times. But this book is called The Screwtape Letters. It's a collection of fictional letters that a demon by the name of Wormwood wrote to his nephew and apprentice, Screwtape. They're, they're demons, and when they call the, uh, they, 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 they worship and serve at Satan's pleasure. And so he's writing these letters to Screwtape to keep his mind focused and sharp on how to continually derail the plans of God. It's written in complete reverse of what you would see in Scripture. Recently, somebody wrote uh, a, a version of this, a letter that perhaps, uh, I'm sorry, I got the words wrong. This is, he's writing it to Wormwood. Screwtape wrote them to his nephew, Wormwood. And someone recently wrote one that they, they, they say that if C.S. Lewis was alive today, essentially this would have been written. So I want to read you a letter from Screwtape to Wormwood that ties in with what we want to talk about. Dear Wormwood, I received your latest letter in which you expressed a number of fears over your patience celebration of those seasons of the year that Christians call Advent and Christmas, and to which our Father below only refers to, usually in disgust, as the invasion. I must admit, Wormwood, I could not help but laugh at how fearful you seemed at this prospect. Not that these particular seasons shouldn't strike fear in every young fiend like yourself when rightly understood, but therein lies our advantage when it comes to so many Christians. There is much they misunderstand or never consider at all. Devil forbid they ever grasp the real implications of these seasons." So since you asked how best to handle this current, and I believe you called it dreaded, situation, let me offer three heinous suggestions that even those in hell's high command would not question. If you can succeed in the first two, the third may not even be necessary. But if worst comes to worst, the third suggestion is always at your disposal, and it is effective because it gives your patient the illusion he's celebrating these seasons when in fact you're helping him miss the point. First, Try keeping the patient sufficiently distracted. This is important, Wormwood, because the enemy wants him to ponder and meditate on that awful truth, I shudder even to write it, the incarnation. You must do all you can to prevent this from happening. And distraction is one of your deadliest weapons during these seasons. I know you've failed miserably in similar efforts in the past and have paid dearly for it, but there are so many potential means for distraction during this one month that even you should find this task easy. So keep him overly committed to all sorts of things. Yes, even good things. Make sure he goes to every party and feels obligated to go out and purchase a gift for each one. Make sure he attends concerts and dinners and charity events. If his calendar isn't full, you have failed. Exhaust him. Tire him out in any way you can. Keep him going and doing. And if that doesn't work, distract him with entertainment and other mindless tricks. Just don't give him time and space to consider what these seasons are actually meant to celebrate. If that doesn't work for you, then try keeping his celebrations merely sentimental. It's no use trying to keep him from celebrating these seasons entirely. That simply will not work. But if you can make them nothing more than sentimental and nostalgic, then you will have prevented him from reflecting on the real meaning of the enemy's actions. So by all means, let him sing and be merry. 
Hell knows we have made good use of those kinds of things just as much as we have misery and gloom. But make sure he only sings and reflects on things like sleigh rides and silver bells and snowfall and decorations and family gatherings, things every one of his fellow creatures can sing about and celebrate. And if you can make him shed a sentimental tear while he sings about them, even better. Those kinds of songs are quite harmless in the eyes of hell. What he must be kept from singing, however, are those carols that make hell tremble because they're filled with truths we cannot deny. Truths about who the enemy is and what he has done to triumph over our Father below. When your patient celebration begins to include such songs or reflection on such themes, you are in real and serious danger. Even so, you are not without one last method of attack. If all else fails, try keeping the enemy's story, what we call the bad news, limited to the invasion. It is bad enough that your patient thinks on this at all, but realize it could be worse. So if you foolishly allow him to focus his attention on the invasion, then at least be sure to let the story go no further in his mind. All those bipeds the enemy has created seem to love babies, so make them think the bad news is nothing more than a story about a baby, something cute and sweet, but not serious and significant. Find a way to keep the story in Bethlehem. You can even let them keep their, his manger scenes with all the animals present. Just let it go no further. Make sure he keeps thinking of the enemy only as a child. Don't let him think about the enemy as a man or what he did to some of our fiendish friends or how he humiliated all of hell when he rose again. You can seed the manger in your patient's thinking so long as you divorce it from the cross and the empty tomb. But once he begins to recognize there's more to the story of the bad news than just the invasion especially if he thinks about the great defeat, then he will turn in gratitude to the enemy. And I sincerely hope for your sake, especially this does not happen. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Satan is a master of distraction. He is a master at dangling nice and appealing things in front of our face to get our minds and attention focused on anything that's not Jesus. And he will even seed some focus on Jesus if it's not a full focus on Jesus. The whole book is an indictment when I read it of the things that I know easily distract me from the person of Jesus. You know, Jesus speaks quite a bit on what things are going to come ahead. That's where we're going to pick up with the word today. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. That's on page 573, by the way, if you're using the Bible in front of you. 573. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. You can have it. It's a gift from us. If you know someone that needs a Bible, please take it and give it to them. You can even take full credit for it. That's fine. Uh, We just want to get God's word in as many hands as possible. Page 573 is where we're going to be camped out for a little bit here today. Uh, But I just want to give you a brief, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 24, 25, and uh, and look at some of the headings, it is Jesus being very serious. Now, Jesus is rarely what we have recorded as being humorous or funny, but he had to be appealing. He wasn't just a boring dude that always stood up and said serious things. He had to be a draw. When people saw him, they wanted to be near him. He was the life of the party. 
But when Jesus had something serious to say, he said it and he said it well. But what Jesus started to do is he started to tell what's what we call parables. And parables were a story that had a profound truth attached to them. A, a way to creatively say something, to captivate your audience to something bigger than what you were what you thought, what they thought maybe you were talking about. And so he uses a lot of parables in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew as he's speaking to this crowd. But this is a very serious set of conversations from Jesus. He, he talks about the signs of the end of the times, the end of the world. He talks about that. What we have is Matthew 24. He talks about what that's going to look like. He talks about... in. Ch- in 24, starting at like verse 29, you're going to see that he talks about the coming of the Son of Man, what that's going to look like whenever he comes back. And then he starts using parables, and he says something about a lesson from the fig tree, and then he goes in to talk about how nobody really knows when this moment is going to come. And that's what leads us up to where we're at today. So read with me, read along with me in Matthew 25. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 13, and then we're just going to walk through it together to make sense of uh, how it applies to us. So Jesus goes on to say, just so you know, at the end of uh, chapter 24, he's talking about how no one knows the day or the hour of the return of the Son of Man. And he picks up and he says in verse 1 of 25, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. After the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Our culture can read this and think, that's a really weird story. Right? Does anyone read that thing? Just be honest. That's a weird story. Steve's the only one who thought that was weird. Steve and, <laughs> Steve and partially Eric. Okay. The rest of you need to come and talk to me and Andy about lying after the service. <clears throat> so this, is, this, is, this can be kind of a weird uh, story. So let me just give you a little bit of historical context to help you understand why when Jesus says this to the crowd, it makes complete sense to them. And it goes back to the, how the Jewish customs handled a wedding ceremony. Now, I'm not going to get into the, all of it because it would take a long, long time. And, uh, but I would say that the Jewish wedding customs were beautiful. And it's a lot of how we get some of our own symbols that we use in our wedding customs today. People don't know how deeply faith-based some of the customs of their wedding ceremonies are a lot of times. But, but a lot of what we do at weddings in America are completely based on some of these old, age-old customs. But Jesus' language, whenever he's compared to being the bridegroom and he's coming for his bride, the church, all of that language comes back to this beautiful custom. And so the, 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 
the potential groom and his father would go to the potential bride's house and the fathers would work out a bride price. The dad would have to say, I want my son to marry your daughter, but I realize your daughter is a prized possession of yours. Possession is not the right word, but you get what I'm saying. So this daughter, this, this man has been entrusted with this beautiful girl, and now this other guy's coming in saying, no, I want to take her from you, and I want you to entrust her to me, and I want, I want you to entrust your daughter to my son, and I want to show you, I want to show you through what I will give you that I believe my son can do just as honorable a job, maybe even better job of loving her and caring for her than you have as her father. And I want you to believe that. So therefore, here's what I'm willing to give you to prove my son's worth and valor to you. And they'd work out a price for the bride and they'd settle on it. And then the father and the son would leave. And they would go back to the father's house and they would, they, he, the son would be given an opportunity to build a new set of uh, uh, where they, he would live with his new bride onto the father's house. And so as he's building, it says no one knows what day he will come back. So the bride, the, 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 the upcoming bride is left with her parents to make herself ready for her wedding. And she's to prepare and one day, as she's preparing, the, the, the husband will get done with his construction, and he'll go down to his dad and he'll say, Dad, I built my wife a house. What do you think? And the dad will come up, and he'll look it over, and he'll say, This house matches up with the man of character that I've told this man you are. So this house is ready. Go get your bride. And so he would leave, and he'd get all his buddies together. We call them groomsmen. Usually that just means idiots, right? <laughs> right, like, have you ever seen groomsmen that you're like, you haven't walked away from wedding and thought, those guys are idiots. <laughs> if you interact with my groomsmen, you would say, I say that. So, so the groomsmen all gather around this guy, they're like, dude, let's go get her. Like, let's go ride go-karts first, though. You know, whatever, right? So, so they all leave and they go to the, the house of the bride. Before they get there, though, there's, there's trumpets that sound. There's someone that goes before them and sounds the trumpet and says, make yourself ready for the bridegroom is coming. And they would, they would get to the house and he would get her. And she would be ready. And her maidens would be ready to celebrate. And then they'd all be invited into this party after the ceremony. Now, Jesus uses the word what's translated into as virgin, and that's important for us to understand because from the scriptural standpoint and even from a historical standpoint, a, a man and a woman were to leave their self and keep themselves sexually pure until the night of their wedding. Our culture has abandoned that completely, but that's not abandoned in God's word, so therefore we shouldn't abandon it either. But we are to keep ourselves pure, sexually pure. That way, whenever you have this one gift that you can't give to anybody called your virginity, you're going to give it to someone that you're going you're to give your whole life to. You're going to commit your life to. Now, that's another sermon for another day. But Jesus uses that intentionally because if you believe that God is who he says he is, then you believe that when he says something is best for you, you do it. You adhere to it. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if you don't like it, even if it's hard, you, you, you adhere to it. 
And so these, these women are making themselves ready in the Jesus' parable. They're making themselves ready, and, and the bridegroom's coming at midnight, and so they didn't know what time he was coming. The trumpet sounds, they grab their lanterns, and they go to where they know they're supposed to go. The bridegroom is going to come, and he's going to get her, and we're going to be invited in. But they said with their mouths they were ready. They did save themselves. They were sexually pure leading up to the moment. They did have their lanterns, but they weren't completely bought into this. They were not prepared. They were ill-equipped. They were not committed. And so when the bridegroom came and they said, oh, listen, we're not going to have enough oil in our lamps to get to the rest of the way. Can you give us some of your oil? And the five who were completely committed, that were completely ready, were completely prepared, said, if we give you our oil, we will not be ready. We will not have enough to get there. You need to take whatever time you have left, if you even have it, and go find someone who's selling oil and then come back. And by the time they get back, the wedding party has started. So we came, we, we found you, we introduced ourselves to you, we brought you into the party. You weren't there. We don't know who you are. Why should we, we, we can't let you in. You had every opportunity to be ready, and you weren't. That's Jesus' point. All the supplies were there. You knew what you needed. You didn't do it. And, and there's going to come a time where the, the, the graciousness and the forgiving and the I'm going to, okay, fine, I'll give you a pass. And yeah, you've got plenty of time and all that stuff that we give over to far too much is going to end. That's what Jesus is teaching on. That if you're really committed to Jesus, akin to John the Baptist, then you will be prepared. You will be ready. You will be focused. You will know whenever it sounds and you're supposed to head in that direction what you need to take with you. You will be ready and prepared and excited. You will have no question about it. It's, it's, it's akin to a woman who's about to give birth to her first baby. You have the ready bag by the door. Like you are prepared. You are ready. The nursery's done. You are ready. Everything's painted. Everything's prepared. You've got, you've got 40 different sizes of diapers saved just in case you have a monster or a tiny baby. You're prepared. You're committed. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. If you have TBS on cable, you should have seen this. It's on like every other day. This movie Shawshank Redemption, spoiler alert, by the way. I always say that, spoiler alert, but I'm going to also give you my caveat. It's been around for over 20 years. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you what the movie's about, and, uh, and if you haven't seen it, that's on you. But the movie is about a guy who's wrongfully imprisoned. Sorry, Jen, I know you haven't seen it. It didn't make your list of the five movies you've actually seen. But So, uh, so this, the story centers around a guy named Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne got uh, wrongfully imprisoned for killing his wife, which he did not do. Now, he gets the, the evidence is stacked against him, and he gets sentenced to life in prison at Shawshank Prison. Shawshank's a pretty rough place, and uh, there's a guy in prison that uh, his name's Red, and he can get you things. 
So Red is the guy that you go to if you want something or you need something. And Andy makes an odd request at the pretty much the front end of his prison term where he asks for him to get a rock hammer for him. Rock hammer is only about that big. It's used to just chisel rocks into different shapes. And he wants to make a chess set while he's there. And so he gets this rock hammer. One day, Andy has survived prison for a long time. And, and he, one day they do the count and Andy doesn't show up for the count. And so they go up to his cell, and he's not there, and they tear a poster off the wall only to find that there is a tunnel dug out of the prison, and Andy Dufresne has escaped. There's a narration that Red says in the background. He says, I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to dig through the walls of Shawshank with a tiny rock hammer. Andy Dufresne did it in less than 20. Why do you think a guy in the movie can use a tiny rock hammer and chisel away at a hole in his cell for 20 years, filling his pockets with dust, and as he's walking through the yard on his exercise time, every once in a while pull a little bit more dust out of his pocket and dump it as to not get caught, and get into that habit for 20 years. Why? And it's because if he's committed to living in freedom, he will do anything he has to do to get it. He will do whatever he has to do to experience and live in freedom. Freedom was only promised to Andy Dufresne on the other side of the walls of Shawshank. So he was committed to the hard work it took for him to live in true and lasting freedom. You see, the question has to be asked. Make yourself ready, be prepared, but what do we make ourselves ready by doing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Flip over to Matthew chapter 28. This is the last thing Jesus says before he leaves. So what's happened in between the teaching we just looked at and the teaching we're going to look at is a little bit more teaching by Jesus, some prayers of Jesus, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being beaten, Jesus being mocked, Jesus being crucified, Jesus dying, Jesus being buried, Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And that's where we pick up this story in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Follow along with me as we see what Jesus says here right before he leaves. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just stop there for a second and let that sink in. The son of God, the son of the creator of the universe, the one who is present with Father and in the Father when the world came into existence, the one who has the authority and all the power and everything, he says, my Father has given me the same amount of authority that he has, all authority, all of it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's important that he says that because if he doesn't say that, then he's just some guy telling you what to do. But he's telling you what his authority is. And if someone tells you what their authority is and they carry the authority, then you have to listen to what they say or there are consequences. Am I right? So verse 19, go therefore. Now, if we see the word therefore in Scripture, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what's it? Good job. Okay, so... 
Go therefore, if all the authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, then go and do what? It doesn't say anything about whispering. It says what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, listen, to observe all that I have commanded. Not all they have commanded. Not all the systems have commanded. All that I have commanded. Jesus says, all the authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If Jesus commanded it, we are commanded to duplicate it. And behold, he gives this caveat at the end, which is it's a bookend. So first it's the authority, and second it's the presence. He says, I have the authority to tell you what I'm about to tell you. And then he ends by saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. I have the authority to say this, but you're not going to do it alone. I'm going to be with you the whole time. So how do we prepare ourselves? How do we make ourselves ready? How do we make this Christmas potentially more impactful than anyone ever in the past for our lives? And it's that. It's to busy ourselves doing the one thing that threatens Satan most, and that's making disciples. That if we interact with someone in our lives that we love and they're doing something and they're, they're acting in such a way that doesn't reflect the heart of Jesus and you know it's wrong, you don't just yell at them. You don't just ignore them because they annoy you. You interact with them. You walk alongside them. You open up the word with them and you say, listen, this is what the heart of Jesus is. You claim to know Jesus. And that's why I just want you to see what Jesus says about this thing that you've been acting on or you've been living out of. Hey, listen, I think you're a little distracted by all the trimmings and trappings of Christmas and not focused in on Jesus. And that's not really what Jesus wants. So why don't we just take, can we meet for coffee this week? I just want to get in the word together. Make sure our minds are set on the right things. That's not you yelling at somebody and belittling somebody. That's you saying, listen, let's get focused together on this. Let's make sure we're together. Guys, if you are striving to be, be disciplined in your focus and love of Jesus, and there are people in your life that you love that aren't, that's making disciples, sitting with them and helping them to stay focused at the level you are striving to stay focused sitting with them and saying, this is what I've learned about living out the character of Jesus. Will you sit with me while I keep learning? It's not you patting someone on the head and saying, you're dumb. I used to be. I'm not anymore. Let me show you how to not be dumb. But sometimes we don't, we don't move towards making disciples because that's what we think it is. It's because somebody who, who wears the right stuff and says the right things and, and, and has attended something long enough is the one that is allowed to make disciples. But that's not true. If you're here today and Jesus' love has captivated you and you are a redeemed of the Lord, then say so. That's what the scriptures say. And make yourself busy doing something eternal. Notice nowhere in here does it say that we can't enjoy the world that we live in. The deeper I fall in love with Jesus, the more I see beauty in things I didn't really see beauty in before. Last night we went out to Peddler's Village and we took the kids with us. It's, we love going out there at Christmas time. The lights are, are awesome. 
and it was crazy crowded. People everywhere. So this isn't something that just I enjoyed because it was hard to find a par- parking spot. But this is the first year that, that our little Josie is like cognitively aware of all the things of Christmas. And she would say, look at all the lights. She calls them yikes, which is even more cute. Yuck, yuck at the yikes, she would say. And she'd get all excited and have this huge smile on her face. And then we'd go into a store and we'd look around at something and we'd come out and she'd get just excited like she hadn't seen them before. It was like 51st dates, like she had amnesia. And now she's seeing them again for the first time. You get all the yikes. Now, before, I would have just thought that is just something cute. But that is something of God, this awe and this wonder. And I found myself like worshiping at the fact that I, I'm telling you a story that I lived because I get to be her dad. And you don't. I get that. And some of you are praising Jesus for that. <laughs> I get it. But it's a worshipful thing. And I think the more we deepen in the character of Jesus, the more we see who Jesus is, the more we intentionally work at making ourselves ready and prepared. And then we see others around us, and we might be able to see their exposed weak spots and understanding this, and we love them enough to walk with them through it. We love them enough to make time for it. We love them enough to say, you know what, I used to do this and say that I didn't have time to invest in these people because of this thing, but this is not eternal and it's not worth it. So I'm going to do this now. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to cancel it. I'm going to say no to it. And I'm going to invest my time over here. As a matter of fact, the more I invest my time in people like this, the less passionate I am about this anyway. You want to turn with me to John chapter 14. It's on page 622 if you're using the Bible. We're going to close on this. John chapter 14. Jesus closes with this in one of his talks to the disciples, and this is how I want to close our time together today. Jesus says in John 14, verses 1 through 6, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him this, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You remember the Jewish wedding customs that we talked about? When you know that and you know what Jesus is saying here, it makes it come alive in a whole new way. What he's teaching on in Matthew 25, when he uses the parable of the ten virgins, he's using that same imagery right here when he says, I told you I was going to leave and go prepare a place for you. And if I say I'm going to prepare a place for you, will I not come back and get you and take you to live with me? You know the way. But he starts off first by saying, in my father's house there are many rooms. There are plenty of space for you, Jesus says. I am a master builder. Listen, I spoke 
mountains into existence, I'm pretty sure I can build you an apartment. And he says, I, if, did I not say uh, that I will go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, and that where I am you may go, and you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas... Thomas is a bad rap. They call him Doubting Thomas. Like, I get that. But Thomas was at least bold enough to ask questions, right? Thomas wasn't afraid to say, how can we know that we don't know where you're going? How do we know how to get somewhere when we don't know where you're going? You say you're going to go prepare a place for us at your father's house, but like, well, I don't know where that is. How do I get there? How do I know the way? And Jesus drops the mic and he says, I am the way. You want to know the way to get there? I'm it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's what Jesus says. You want to know how to get there? Look at my life. Watch how I lived. Pay attention to how I talked to people. Pay attention to how I loved people. Pay attention to what I said was important. To pay attention to where I spent my time. Pay attention to how I prayed. Pay attention to what I said was important to do and not do. Pay attention to those things. Model your life after mine. Don't just give your life to me in word, but do it in deed and you will be prepared. Live your life after mine. Live towards truth because I am the way to get to heaven. I am the gate but I'm also the truth. I am the truth. You want to know what truth is? Look at the word of God and look at me. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says without the death, burial, and resurrection of me, you don't have access back to God. And he says, I will come back and prepare a place for you. Be prepared. If no one can get to God but through Jesus, then us being prepared is, is us living like Him and then giving that gift away. That's how we live prepared. That's how we have enough oil in the lamp. We look at the character of Jesus. We look at how Jesus lived. We understand the truth that He is the way, the truth, and the life. We look at all of that and we say, if that's what Jesus said was important, if that's how Jesus lived, then so will I. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to even say that, to have any kind of response to this grace. To know that we are, we are wretched and we are sinners and we are lost in desperate need of a Savior. And that you gave us that. You offer us that. And if we're here today and we are redeemed of the Lord, may we live in such a way that we are prepared for you to come back because you are coming back. May that excite us. May the knowledge of your holiness flush out sin and may your spirit as it indwells us make sin disgusting to us and flush it out of our lives. Lord, may the questions that are rattling around in our brains and our hearts, may we have the courage like Thomas to speak them and ask those questions and then get the answers from the place and the source that we need to get our answers from. So thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the time we have in it. 
May you find us prepared. May you find us being ones that say, if you, if you left this world behind you, so will I. 